Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Signals to Danger. As a quick intro from me, as ever, I would like to thank you for continuing to tune in as I continue to muddle through this podcast. As I have done previously, I'll use this preamble for a few things. Firstly, just want to ask you yet again, if you are enjoying this podcast, please like it, share it, review it, generally do good things for it. You're the ones who can help to grow it and to grow this community. Railway safety is still a very active area, with another two RAIB reports issued over the last fortnight. The first was published on the 28th of September, when our last full episode released and explains the branch's findings into a collision between two mobile elevating work platforms in Essex during January of this year. If you, like me, don't already know what a mobile elevating work platform is, think of a cherry picker, but one that can run on rails as well. The causes identified for that include an operator who had lost situational awareness and ineffective supervision. Luckily, that incident only resulted in minor injuries to those involved. The second report was somewhat more sombre, issued on the date that I'm writing this episode, the 7th of October. It relates to a fatal accident at Tysley Depot, near Birmingham, on the 14th of December last year. A driver was sadly killed when he was trapped between two trains when another driver tried to couple them. This seems to have been attributed to various procedures having not been followed, with tragic consequences. So, introductions out of the way... Let's get started with today's episode. Railways have been, for many years, the great equaliser. All walks of life, all crammed into the same carriages of the same trains on their way to the same city. And as the train pulls slowly into the station, they all gather their belongings and get ready to alight. Nobody expects that to be the most dangerous part of the journey, not until 1991 and the disaster at Cannon Street Station. The cause of the crash is still not certain. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. As ambulances ferried away dozens of injured to nearby hospitals, survivors sleeping car coaches and two guards vans ploughed across gardens and into two houses more than 20 yards from the track. As news of the disaster first broke, there was no place for politics. A routine everyday commute that ended like this. Many dead, over 50 injured, and 
one of the worst incidents in London's transport history. This is the scene tonight as salvage teams battle to untangle the wreckage of this pollution plan. Were to say that People the killed in 76 inches when a train traffic from London King's Cross to King's Lynn derailed on the West Coast Main Line and a hundred and fifty firemen from all over the Manchester area were called to the scene. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. As I have done previously, I'd like to start by setting the scene for when this accident occurred. This time round, we're in early January 1991. A month earlier, in the December of 90, French and British tunnelling crews shook hands deep below the English Channel as two sides of this great effort broke through to each other in front of the world's media. It was only a few days after Maggie Thatcher resigned to be succeeded by John Major, ending the leadership of the Britain's first female Prime Minister. Tensions in the Middle East continued to increase due to the annexation of Kuwait by Iraq, and on the 3rd of January, the UK expelled all Iraqi diplomats from the country. These tensions would eventually result in Operation Desert Storm, and as a very early precursor to you and me in the way that I can share this with you, in February of 1991, Sir Tim Berners-Lee introduces the first web browser, World Wide Web. I can't imagine he and those he worked with could have realistically had any idea of just how far-reaching that development would end up being, but here we are. Now we know when we are, let's get started. London is the quintessential commuter city. Admittedly, right now is probably not a good time to judge the figures that are involved, but if we go back to the first couple of months this year and the back end of last year, Hundreds of thousands of people a day get onto public transport and make their way into the centre from the suburbs and the surrounding counties. This is supported by the quality and quantity of services in and out of the capital, which almost artificially extends the suburbs to well beyond what you would expect to see in other cities. Now, the closest I could come to figuring out the numbers of people actually involved was a quote from the Mayor's Transport Strategy, published in 2006. Back then, it was estimated that 400,000 people a day arrived into London's terminus stations by underground lines, and a further 860,000 arrived by surface rail. I think it's fair to say that these numbers will only have increased since that point, and it's not hard to believe when you know that Waterloo, the busiest station in both the city and indeed the country, recorded 94 million exits and entries between April 2018 and March 2019. If you were to grossly oversimplify that and just divide it by 365 days, that's 258,000 people entering and leaving that one station every day. London's transport network isn't set up like every other city. If you were to, say, go to York, Leeds, Newcastle, you're likely to find through stations, stations where trains come in from one direction and continue through the city and leave via another normally with a few bay platforms thrown in for terminating services. London was already fairly developed by the time railways began, 
and in the years before the Big Four, individual companies came and built their own stations in the capital. For the same reason that the original cut and cover tube lines form a circle around the centre of London, these stations almost created a ring of grand termini around the capital. While Waterloo is currently the busiest, each of them sees enormous passenger flows, with 8 of the 10 busiest stations in the country being found in London. Alongside Waterloo, they include Paddington, King's Cross, Euston, Victoria, Liverpool Street. We also have Cannon Street Station. Located on the north bank of the River Thames between Southwark Bridge and London Bridge, the tracks enter the station from a bridge over the river, leading from a triangular junction just outside London Bridge Station. Originally built by the South Eastern Railway, it was envisaged to give them a foothold in the City of London and it proved successful. Over the years, as more and more commuted in, the station saw a dedicated rush hour passenger floor. It was so prominent in fact that the station wasn't even open at weekends and evenings for a very large part of its life. In fact at the time of this incident, it was only open Monday to Friday, 5am till 8pm. Cannon Street Station wasn't without its drama either. Over the years there'd been a few collisions between departing and arriving trains, mostly due to misread signals, one train had collided with the bus stops and the station had even played host to an IRA bomb. In 1976, a commuter train was leaving the station after depositing its passengers when a bomb exploded in one of its carriages. Nobody was killed by the blast, but eight people in an adjacent train were injured. The station had also seen extensive remodelling over the years, including the creation of an office block over the top of the platforms, with a fairly questionable contract award process, but that's a different story altogether. That potted history of Cannon Street brings us all the way up to 1991. Tuesday the 8th of January was the second day of the first full week after Christmas. As people returned to normality, the trains were starting to fill up again with people from all walks of life. A 1988 BR advert called Nightmail, and if you haven't seen it I would recommend it, summed up this mix better than most. In a stylized extension of W. H. Jordan's 1936 poem, Nightmare, the mix of passengers was summarized as this. Passenger trains full of commuters bound for the office to work in computers, the teacher, the doctor, the actor in farce, the typist, the banker, the judge in first class. Reading the times with a crossword to do, returning at night on the 642. While my accent doesn't particularly do the first class rhyming couplet any justice there, it really did sum up the variety of people that would get on these trains day in, day out. At 7.58 in the morning, one of these commuter trains departed from Sevenoaks, a town in Kent to the east of London. The 10 car train was formed of three different electric multiple units two four-car class 415s with a two-car class 416 bringing up the rear. The 758 was a perfectly timed service for those working in the heart of the city, booked to arrive into Cannon Street just before quarter to nine in the morning. A short walk from the station to the underground or office was ideal for the residents of Sevenoak and the other places this train called on the way. At 8.36, the train departed from London Bridge Station, a major interchange on the south of the river. Nowadays it stands at the base of the Shard skyscraper, 
but we're about 20 years too early for that now. The train traversed Borough Market Junction and turned north towards the river. As it reached the end of the curve, the train started out over the bridge crossing the Thames. Approaching the station, it slowed from 20 miles an hour, before entering the 15 mile an hour restriction for the platforms. At this point, there were 832 people on board the train. As it coasted into the platform, passengers started to stand up, collect their belongings together and get ready to alight. Due to the type of train they were travelling on, they started to do something else as well. The electric multiple units being operated on this day had a door for each set of seats. While they're not supposed to, it was a very common practice for passengers to open these doors as the train came to a stand. It's the same mentality that leads to people fighting on board to get a specific door on the tube so they can get off at the right point on the platform to get just to the station exit or to their connection to another tube train. Seconds saved now is seconds gained later in the day. The train coasted down platform 3, between 10 to 15 miles an hour, with passengers expecting a brake application to bring them to a gentle stand. It never came. Still travelling at around 10 to 15 miles an hour, the leading vehicle of the train collided with the buffer stops at the end of platform 3. A loud bang echoed around the station and dust filled the air. The vehicles of the train had collided end to end and thrown passengers around the compartments, into each other's laps and into luggage racks. Some had even fallen from the doors of the platform as a collision occurred. The worst damage, however, hadn't occurred at the front of the train, as you might expect. But far further back, the sixth vehicle of the train had overridden the fifth. The underframe of the sixth carriage had pushed through the rear wall of the fifth, folding it in and crushing the bank of seats along it. The folding metal had trapped numerous people as the carriages concertinaed together. The alarm was raised almost instantly. Numerous members of station staff witnessed the collision and contacted emergency services before trying to free people from the wreckage and tending to the wounded. The first rescuers from an outside source actually came from a nearby building site. More than 80 firefighters and 100 ambulance crew were eventually deployed to the scene of the accident. The focus of the rescue efforts was at the point where the 6th and 5th carriages had overridden each other. Between 10 to 18 people were trapped here, and lifting and cutting equipment was used to free them. By 9.55 in the morning, the majority of casualties had been removed to hospital, and by 12.20, the last person had been freed. There is some footage of the rescue effort available on YouTube. There were news crews on site on the day of the accident. The footage shows you the cramped space that these firefighters and paramedics had to work in, and the difficulties experienced by the injured parties. At this point, it would be prudent to introduce another character of this story, Maurice Graham, the driver of the train. As passengers evacuated, he extricated himself from the cab and found himself in the chaos on the platform. Other people who witnessed him there recounted what he was telling people. One passenger said to the cameras, The driver got off. He said, the brakes failed, the brakes failed. That would explain the reason why the train hadn't seemed to stop in time. All things taken into account, while 15 miles an hour might seem like an incredibly low speed when we take into account some of the accidents we've discussed previously, this accident was not without cost. 
A shockingly large number of injuries were recorded as a result of the accident. 542 people were injured. 277 of them needed hospitalisation. But the worst part is, two lives were also lost. 24-year-old Martin Strivens suffered a heart attack after being freed. Three days later, he was joined by 59-year-old Patricia McKay. Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate arrived on scene on the day of the accident. They would be charged with ensuring that the incident was fully investigated and explained so it doesn't happen again. As in every other episode, we need to understand the factors that the investigation was to focus on. First and foremost, why did the train collide with the buffer stops? Had it performed mechanically as it was supposed to, or was the reason the accident had occurred was the brakes hadn't responded to driver Graham's control input. Secondly, if the train was mechanically sound but no braking had occurred, what was the reason for that? Thirdly, why had an accident at such a low speed delivered such an astronomical number of injuries to London's hospitals, let alone the two fatalities? And lastly, it was probably important to look at the age and design of the vehicles and see if that contributed to the severity of the accident. To answer the first question, much work needed to be done. We know the account of Mr Graham, the driver on the platform there in the wreckage, was that the train's brakes had failed. As nice as it would be to instantly take people's word for things like this, there are other inquiries that need to be made to back up those accounts. They started on the very day of the accident, with photographs taken of the driving cab and the control settings by British Transport Police. The brake handle in the cab had been found in the emergency position, and that supports the comments made by the driver. Various other parties, fitters, traction managers and other BR staff who attended the scene also examined the controls and gauges, which told a tale of a braking system which was actually connected up and functioning correctly. All the brake blocks that could be seen were in contact with the wheels and pressure gauges were consistent with a full application. Someone got down on the tracks after the train and the adjacent platform were moved and the tracks below the leading unit of the train were checked. There was no skid marks, no evidence of skidding and you would normally expect that with a full emergency application but it was noted in the report that you might not get it at such a low speed. Once rescue operations were complete, the vehicles were moved in the platform into what would be a normal position on the track. They came and they installed temporary pipes to bypass the most damaged vehicle of the train, and then investigators were able to test the braking systems almost in their entirety. They functioned as expected. Later on, the whole train was moved to Stewart's Lane Depot, and all of the connections were restored, which allowed for full brake testing. Yet again, the equipment was described as being of very good condition and performance. Further to this, tests were also carried out by a chartered electrical engineer, to see whether or not an electrical fault had contributed to the accident. No such evidence was found. Everything pointed to the fact that the train's braking systems were in a fine condition, except for one thing. The fact the train's front end was buried in the buffer stops of a station. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The next question becomes, if the train was functioning correctly, why had the crash occurred? In terms of the actual inquiry report, we're limited as to the evidence the driver can provide, as he was given legal advice not to give evidence, as it might incriminate him in any future legal proceedings, which you are more than able to interpret yourself, I know I have, but it means that the inquiry report features no evidence provided by Mr. Graham. So we move on to the next question. Were the brakes actually applied on the train as expected? We know the equipment was functioning correctly, so the balance of probability leans heavily towards the fact that they weren't, especially when you corroborate that with the statement of others on the train and on the station at the time. A Mr Giles, a regular passenger, described the train as slowing on the approach to the station and freewheeling along platform 3. He went on to say that normally at this point he would hear and feel the train's brakes being applied, but on this occasion he hadn't. Despite being asked multiple questions on the matter, he was adamant that after the train passed the first quarter of the platform, he felt no braking. Moments before the impact occurred, he thought to himself that the train was moving a little fast and didn't appear to be slowing. He estimated that speed to be 10 to 12 miles an hour, and was thrown from his feet and struck his head on a luggage rack. You could argue that the testimony of a regular passenger could potentially be brought into question due to his perceived lack of understanding of the operational railway, whether you agree with that or not, but his testimony did not sit in isolation. He was joined on the train by many others who gave testimony, including a detective sergeant in the British Transport Police, all who described the train as coasting, with no sensation of braking prior to the collision. In fact, the fact that the train hadn't braked appropriately was reflected in testimony provided by railway staff on duty at the station as well. A leading railman was on duty in the kiosk at the end of Platform 3. He estimated the train still to be going between 10 and 15 mile an hour when it was a carriage length from the buffer stops. And a clerical officer. With 10 years of experience of witnessing trains arriving at Cannon Street, had been watching from the windows of the station's control room. He estimated the speed of 10 to 15 miles an hour, with no sign of slowing down, when this train was at a point where they're normally moving at between 3 and 5. The balance of probability was clear in this case. The brakes, despite the comments made on the day by driver Graham, had not failed. 
intermittent faults are a possibility and they can't always be replicated, but no issues were found. The investigation was satisfied that they simply hadn't been applied in line with the actions needed to bring the train safely to a stand at Cannon Street that morning. So the next thing to ascertain, why? One point which was looked into was the fact that the platforms at Cannon Street are entirely enclosed beneath an office block, whereas a lot of stations have natural light, Cannon Street is lit artificially. It's not an unusual arrangement. Other mainline stations are predominantly lit artificially, look at Birmingham New Street for example, and certainly all are during the night. But the question was raised as to whether the transition from bright daylight into the relative dark and artificially lit station would have distracted the attention or challenged the driver's perception of the situation. In order to test that theory, evidence was taken from a driver who had brought a similar train into Cannon Street a little while before the accident. This driver described how he'd managed to safely bring his train in without incident, that the buffer stop lights had been clearly visible, and he also continued to describe how drivers familiar with the station with the knowledge of the challenging lighting, would compensate for that change of circumstances. With driver Graham's experience, it's unlikely that he would have suffered any distraction due to this transition. And so that doesn't explain a reason why he didn't apply the brakes. A more likely reason reared its head three days after the accident. Driver Graham was medically examined, including a drugs test. The drugs test, a urine sample, taken from Mr. Graham, showed a level of 50 nanograms per milliliter of cannabinoid products, marijuana. The doctor in question was of the opinion that he was unfit for driving duties. In fact, British railways were later criticised for the delay in testing the driver for drugs and alcohol. Due to the delay, while the investigator was able to say that categorically Mr. Graham had used cannabis... At some point. No evidence exists as to whether he was under the influence at the time of the accident. There was another opportunity to capture whether or not someone was unfit for duty, but it was missed due to a working practice used at the time. Drivers were normally required to book on for their shift at their depot, where they would be seen by a manager or a supervisor of some description. If someone turned up unfit for work, you know, through the influence of some substance or due to fatigue, personal issues, so on and so forth, it would be captured at this point. The driver wouldn't go out driving trains and jobs could have been covered. There was a method of work in place, however, that meant that this didn't always have to be the case. To avoid a long detour or an unnecessary journey, train crew were able to call the supervisor to just get permission to go directly to the location where their first train was booked to start from. Any notices for train crew were arranged to be posted at all locations, so even if a driver went straight to the other location, they'd still see their notices. They wouldn't, however, be seen by a manager or supervisor. Driver Graham started his shift at 7 in the morning, but at 1.30am, he had phoned in to Orpington Depot where he was based. He was requested to go directly to Grove Park where his first job was booked to start. Mr Graham never made a follow-up call to the supervisor to let him know he'd made it to Grove Park, but later on the supervisor was informed that he'd turned up as requested and taken his train. 
Now, it is a reasonable expectation that train crew turn up for work well-rested and prepared to work. One would probably have to ask whether a driver booking on for a a 7am movement should really still be awake at 1.30am. But all things aside, the investigation listed the cause of the accident as being this. The driver, Maurice Graham, failed to make the proper brake application, and by his omission, he was responsible for the accident. Any deeper than that, they just weren't able to ascertain whether the use of cannabis had led to this omission. The next thing that needed to be understood was why such a low-speed accident had led to such a large number of injuries being caused. It was only a slow-speed collision as the train approached the station. The main issue with that is that this wasn't just any station. It was the final station on the route, and it was the station pretty much everybody who had boarded that train that morning had wanted to travel to. We've all seen people as they approach their station, and we've probably all been there. We stand up, collect our bits and bobs, fold our newspapers, put our crossword puzzles away. Nowadays it's iPads in the bag, headphones getting put in the pocket, travel cards getting taken out. 800 people were on board on the 8th, and most of them will have been up and ready to alight. Because of the way the carriages were built, Each two rows of seats had their own doors, which weren't interlocked, so passengers had even started to open these ready as the train slowed into the platform. To understand the injuries sustained by passengers, surveys and tables were created, but additionally, extensive computer modelling was used to try and understand the movements and impacts of passengers as they bounced around the compartments of the train. In the model, they assessed passengers standing and sitting, facing both directions, and they assessed the injuries against a 5 and 15 mile an hour crash. This modelling showed that extensive injuries could be caused by impact with other passengers, luggage racks, walls and other structures within the carriage. The layout of them, with seating running across the carriages, created plenty of opportunities for those impacts. These lists of injuries is before you start looking at the trapping of passengers and associated crush injuries involved in the 5th and 6th vehicles and their entanglement. Those injuries were of course more severe, but requires a little less investigation. It's, it's fairly obvious how those occurred. The fact that one carriage of the train had telescoped into another left people with injuries exactly as you would expect and explained the two fatalities. All of which leads us into the last question. Did the age and the design of the rolling stock contribute to the accident? All of the vehicles involved in the crash were either class 415 or 416 electric multiple units. The leading unit, 415618, had been constructed in 1960 to the BR Mark I standard design, and the last unit, 416227, was introduced in the mid-50s. The main focus of this part, however, was on the 5th and 6th vehicles, which were the two leading vehicles of the middle unit, 415-484. While this again was introduced in the 1950s, the difference here was that this train was created by rebuilding other, older vehicles, 
Vehicle 5 had initially been introduced in 1934 as part of a Southern Railway unit, and the sixth vehicle was built on an underframe initially constructed in 1928. While the age of the stock was actually mentioned in the conclusion of the report, it also made reference to the fact that while it was quite old, it was properly maintained, and it didn't contribute to the cause of the accident, which I think we've already established. However, the out-of-date design did contribute to the severity of the accident, particularly the fact that the carriages were able to ride up and over one another. To understand how the outdated design allowed this to happen, we need to look at the way they're connected to each other. Each vehicle sat on an underframe, which the carriage body sat upon. The metal bars, which run longitudinally, are the sole bars. The simplest way for one vehicle to override another is when these sit at different heights. To understand if this was an issue here, the height of each sole bar above the railhead was measured when the train was relocated to the depot. No substantial differences were found between the vehicles. That wasn't the answer as to what caused the override. As I said earlier, that answer was in the connection between the cars. Unlike most units today, these carriages didn't have gangway connections. Once you boarded the train, you could only move within that carriage unless you get off at a station and move between them. The only physical connection between the two was a chain link coupling, literally a chain which connects one car to the next. Each vehicle also had a buffer which absorbed any force between the two vehicles and would be quite often in contact, but it wasn't a fixed connection. The smoking gun actually turned out to be the method in which the buffers had been mounted to the vehicle underframe. Behind the buffers, there was a piece of wooden packing attached to the headstock. The headstock is the piece of metal which runs across the vehicle, joining the two longitudinal beams. It forms the end of the underframe. Throughout the train, when the damage was assessed, it was found that the headstocks and the wooden packing had been deformed by the collision. One of the places where this was most severe was at the front of the sixth vehicle, The wooden pads had crushed asymmetrically, more at the top, which meant that the force of the collision initially inclined the buffers upwards. Because they were now inclined, this actually created a situation where the forces weren't just transferred horizontally across the vehicles, they started to be transferred vertically. That's what created the opportunities for the vehicles to ride over one another, and it was certainly as a result of the aged stock being used. With all of the questions answered, we can now understand what the outcomes were. In 1991, it was illegal for railway staff to be under the influence of alcohol, but incredibly there was no equivalent law for drugs, effectively ruling out any criminal proceedings against Maurice Graham for his proven use of cannabis. The scenario was rectified by the Transport and Works Act 1992. The Act had an entire section devoted to offences involving drink and drugs by railway workers. This act criminalised being on duty while being over the prescribed limits and introduced police powers which allowed them to take specimens. Not only that, the fact that driver Graham wasn't tested for three days shouldn't be able to be replicated now. Four-cause testing is enshrined in the safety culture of the railway. If mistakes are made by staff which could have led to an accident, they're taken off the job and drug and alcohol testing is carried out. 
No longer do we wait for things to actually happen, but near misses are tested for as well. Every train operating company, freight operating company, network rail or any other companies where staff perform safety critical work have a healthcare provider on retainer who will get personnel to site to administer testing there and then. Processes are in place to have staff looked after until those personnel arrive to maintain a chain of custody. In addition, a system was also developed in 1994. This was TPWS, Train Protection and Warning System. It wasn't rolled out everywhere at that time, but over the next years, sadly following a few other accidents, it became a lot more prominent. As a general overview, this system is designed to automatically bring trains to a stop if they exceed a preset speed. This could be the speed to successfully stop at a red signal or, as would have prevented Cannon Street, to be the speed needed to successfully stop before the buffers at the end of a train platform. We will probably do a bonus episode on TPWS. It's it's not that meaty, but it's certainly worth having a good understanding of. If nothing else, it's an output of a lot of accidents. Recommendations were also made that train crew should no longer be able to book onto their job remotely and should have to be seen by a supervisor when they start work. This would prevent people being able to start when they were obviously unfit for duty. In the future, train crew would have to book in by telephone or report to a supervisor who could visibly check them for signs of unfitness for duty. This was a recommendation that had previously been made First, in 1972, after the Eltham Hall train crash, six people died there, and that was a derailment that was caused by a driver intoxicated by alcohol, travelling at excessive speed. One other feature that you see now that would have helped at Cannon Street is that trains now feature override protection on the carriage ends. You've probably seen them. Ridges on the edge of each vehicle that, when the couplers collapse and the vehicles are pushed together, the ridges engage and prevent the sole bars from rising relatively to each other, locking the vehicles at the same height. I think it would be fair to say that the biggest outcome and the most substantial change which was led by Cannon Street was the introduction of black boxes on trains. The inquiry into this accident, and so many others, was reliant on the testimony of the driver as to control inputs, what he did at certain times, how the train reacted... That's less than ideal, especially considering that in this case, the driver refused to testify. Now even in cases where they did testify, there's always an element of ambiguity. People's memories can fade, or be influenced. Some people just don't always remember things exactly as they happened. What the black boxes did was provide a record of those features, the control inputs, the speed, did they use the horn, what were the braking inputs and many other factors. Over the years, they've only got more and more developed. We have mentioned them before, um, on train data recorders, on train management recorders. The important thing is this. Regardless of whether or not Driver Graham wanted to testify, that black box would testify for him. The legacy of Cannon Street is the fact that aged commuter stock was removed over the next few years. 
The 416s were out by 1995, and the 415s with them. Modern networker units were brought in, with gangway connections, door interlocking. Override protection is now standard on most stock, and the many, many commuters who board trains every day can do so safe in the knowledge that their journey is substantially safer than a similar one 30 years ago. So, once again, thank you for tuning in to Signals to Danger. We are still a fortnightly podcast and we've been keeping up with that, so that means that the next episode will be released at midnight on the 26th of October. We might sling a bonus episode in like we have done previously between then and now. Once again, please connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Share with your friends, your colleagues, anyone you think might be interested. If you want to share anything, drop me a message. The more listeners I can get, again, the more I can look at expanding the podcast. So, till next time, travel safe.